Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, we will both be interviewing Andrew Lipstein, author of The Vegan. If you haven't heard about this book, it is certainly time you did. It is most certainly not how to go vegan. It is not a how to go vegan book. I wrote that book. Literally, I wrote that book. It is a novel and it has been named a must read book of 2023 by Time and a most anticipated book from the New York Times, Vanity Fair, L, Town and Country. It goes on and on and on. And I should note that while we don't often have non-vegans on, Andrew is a vegetarian, which is something we discuss at some length on this interview. And I'll also add that this was uh, an interview that we did with a live studio audience or a virtual live studio audience. It was our flock. Uh, One of the perks of becoming a flock member is that now it's pivoted that our flock Fridays allow you to sit in for a live interview that will air. And then we do a Q&A with you if you are a part of the flock and you join us. And, and the Q&A becomes the flock bonus content that week. So this was really different. This was a really different energy. This was a really different kind of interview. I am sort of obsessed with y- your and Andrew's way of communicating with one another. Like, wowie, what did you think? Well, I'm not sure that I thought I was wowy, but uh, but thank you. I thought you were also great, and I thought Andrew was 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 great. It was it was really different, and I mean, I felt like he was interviewing us more than we were interviewing him, which was kind of funny. And it was a really interesting experiment in having a non-vegan on on the podcast. Yeah, you know, we've always thought like, should we uh, have more non-vegans? But if, unless somebody is kind of like him and really, really curious and open and wants to have this discussion. It's kind of hard for me to imagine. I've always said like, if we have non-vegans on, and you know, of course we do sometimes have non-vegans on, but not to talk about veganism. Sometimes wildlife issues, you know, you can find somebody who's doing really interesting wildlife work and who for some God knows what reason is not vegan. You know, we all know that. And sometimes companion animal issues, it's the same thing. But, but this was definitely about veganism. I, you know, he wrote the book. Well, his book is really, really good, but it's not like any other book. And it's not, a, you know, you, you have to read it. I highly recommend it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, this, I and I listened to the audio for those of you who are like me and do not have an attention span for actually reading words. I listen to audiobooks all the time. I'm currently in the middle of Barbara Streisand's 900 page memoir which on audio is like 48 hours or something like that. I'm, I'm a little more than halfway through. But uh, that she is not going to be a guest because she is like horrible on animal issues, which is sad. That's the only reason that That's we can't. That's the only that reason. We're, we're refusing to have her on. <laughs> she wanted to. <laughs> she reached out to Vicky and was like, hey, it's me, Babs. Anyway... <laughs> So, but Andrew, I have to say this book, The Vegan, it was so good. And I was so excited about talking to him though. Now, for those of you who haven't listened yet or haven't read it yet, we do have a moment where we pause and say that from that moment to the end of the interview is going to have a spoiler alert. So you can listen until that point and then go read the book really quickly. (laughs) And then come back and finish it. Or, you know, I I don't like spoilers. Some people don't care. I think this is a particular book that you should not have the spoiler. You should read it and let it unfold in real time. But 
yeah, this is this is a fascinating interview. And, and just a delightful guy. Really nice. I mean, yeah. really, really nice I did guy. wind up sending him a copy of Fabulous Vegan afterwards. So maybe he's vegan now. Oh, <laughs> undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. Him and Barbara Streisand. I should send one to her. Absolutely. Anyway, so speaking of having non-vegans on, we are in the middle of our end of year fundraising. And thank you so much for those of you who have been contributing. We are a nonprofit and we so appreciate it. Our our the bulk of our fundraising for the year happens now in December. Uh, but the reason I bring this up is because we do have a comment box and someone wrote while, while they were making a donation, they wrote in and, and said we should have more non-vegans on. And I just wanted to chat with you a little bit more about that, Marianne, because I, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to, damn it. It just doesn't seem like that's what we do. I, I mean, that's the rest of the world. The rest of the world is having these, you know, when they organically happen like they did with Andrew, that's one thing. And also Marcus Daniels, someone else I interviewed who's like a fantastic human being. And uh, he wasn't vegan. Yeah, every once in a while, it turns out somebody isn't vegan. And, and it does come up. There was a... a an author once that also that that in the middle of the interview, I realized he wasn't vegan and we talked about it yeah. and that's fine. But, uh, you know, it, it would be hard to invite somebody on. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is how I've always felt. Invite somebody on who isn't vegan to talk about why they're not vegan. I mean, of course, we have Peter Singer on. He always says he's not vegan, always makes a point of it. So that's different. You know, people like that. It's like they're willing to talk about it. They're They're open to talking about it. And it's kind of, you know, we're on the same page about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But just having somebody on to defend on veganism, yeah, to defend meat eating, I, I'm not going to do that. I mean, the whole world defends meat eating. We can't really invite people on just to berate them and tell them they're stupid. Well, it's funny because I remember <laughs> I remember we were having dinner with a friend in New York like a year ago or so. And we were talking about whether we should change some of the interviews we do, some of the types of interviews. And she suggested having more climate people on who are like from big climate podcasts. And we got stuck on the fact that like, but why would, they're not vegan. I mean, they're not vegan. They're not going to want to come on the show. And she's like, well, you could talk to them about that. And I was like, I wish, I mean, that would be great if we could turn every, you know, prominent podcast uh, host who talks about environmental issues, vegan. But Alas, I don't think that's in the cards, but I don't know. I mean, if more people think we should, let us know, make an argument for it. And and suggest too, like, you know, there's lots, there's right. many, many non-vegans in the world. Right. Which ones would we pick to have on? Would it be climate people who, who, you know, I don't think they'd come on, but non-vegans don't want to talk about why they're not vegan. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, it's it's awkward. Either they don't really know you know, they've never really thought about it seriously. Like, why do I, I don't need to know why they're not vegan. I don't know. We're going around in circles. Well, okay, but let's, let's, let's move on. Because speaking of veganism, I was able to get an article on. We are frequently speaking of veganism. We, I was say, but yes. All right, fine. It wasn't my best transition. I was able to get an article on WXXI about vegan thanksgivings and yeah that was you and cool. i discussed it a lot before i put it together because i needed to come up with a way of putting a story out there that mainstream people would read but that would be 
you know, greenlit and that would be about veganism. So I wound up deciding that the story would unfold as I was putting it together. And I, I, I love the way it came out. Yeah, no, it came out really. I mean, it is really treading a, a tightrope to not betray your, your own veganism, but still not just have anybody perceive you as proselytizing on the radio. It's kind of a, a code switching exercise, I think. Definitely. We'll link to it for those of you who are interested. We just talked about this. It was sort of tied together by this new survey that indicated that over two thirds of Americans have tried vegan alternatives and a third regularly include them in their diets. Now, everyone listening to this right now is like, duh, peanut butter and jelly is vegan. Like, of yeah. course. But that cauliflower. Went, yeah. People have cauliflower. But it went on to talk about how like contextualizing it around Thanksgiving, it went on to talk about how you can at the very least make all the sides vegan and just and not have a separate side dish. So I interviewed a couple of vegan restaurant owners and, you know, from grass fed and the red fern here in Rochester. And yeah, it was it was a great piece. It was them that made it a great piece. The, the, the people I interviewed, they brought up the fact that like the trend toward veganism at Thanksgiving reflects this like broader reconnection with the holiday roots, focusing on gratitude and love and, you know, compassion. And harvest, you know, it's yeah. all about celebrating the harvest. Yes. We don't have to focus on, we can still celebrate Thanksgiving. We can still celebrate Thanksgiving with beautiful plant-based food. And and we don't have to focus on anything, on bad stuff. We You, you just managed to focus on good stuff. Yes, totally. Part of the art, you know, speaking publicly in non-vegan forums without mm-hmm. betraying the animals, but without, you know, everybody like leaving the room. Exactly. And speaking of leaving the room, we entered a room and there was someone that we knew (laughs) in that room. The the episode of unbelievably painful transitions. We did enter a room. Okay. Right before we went into this room, I was like, I don't know, maybe we'll see someone we know. And we went in and inside the room, which happened to be a vegan restaurant called Grandma's Vegan Kitchen in Montour Falls, New York, there sat Beth Bagani. And for those of you who are old school, our henhouse people, Beth Bagani used to run the now defunct our henhouse Etsy shop. She knitted everything and all the money went to our henhouse. And we even put together this adorable vegan knitting video with her a billion years ago, which we're going to link to in the show notes because you have to see it. It's so cute. Starring Rose the dog with Beth Bagani and Jasmine Seger. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's really starring Beth and Rose. I'm there. Actually, you're in the background at one point. So if you squint, you'll see Marianne in the background. Anyway, I love this book. I said to Beth, you need to have, I, I just said book. I, I love this video. I said to Beth, you should have a book. And she said, we could call it Compassion Knit. That's cute, right? Compassion. Now somebody's going to steal that. Yeah, we should trademark it real quick. Anyway, so that was nice. Going, yeah, going that was out lovely. to dinner. And we had a delicious Thanksgiving dinner. All vegan. Yes, we did. All right. Well, before we get to the interview, we do have a very important announcement to make. It is that time of year when people give to charity and a lot of people maybe think they're doing a good deed and they want to help less fortunate people, but then they wind up maybe donating to places like Heifer International and 
Oxfam and World Vision. We as vegans know that those campaigns are disgusting. They're literally buying live animals to give to families in impoverished communities and teaching them how to further exploit those animals. It's so disgusting. But there is a vegan alternative. It's so wrong in every way. But fortunately, we're going to tell you about the vegan alternative so you can donate to this kind of campaign without exploiting animals and you can spread the news as well to your friends and family about the fact that there are all these reasons to just not do this animal gifting nonsense. Just makes me crazy. And you can support plant-based feeding gifts. What a great idea. A great idea from a great organization, A Well-Fed World has a campaign called Plants for Hunger. It's the number four, Plants for Hunger, where instead of using animal-based foods or gifting live animals, donations support plant-based foods and farming projects serving some of the world's most impoverished communities. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, and they send, Well-Fed World sends 100% to smaller organizations working in their own communities. And you can just compare this to what Heifer International does. Spent more than $37 million on fundraising. This wow. organization is so huge. It just makes me crazy when I think of how how popular it's become. That was in 2021. Their CEO made more than $500,000. If you want to learn out more, you can look at a Well-Fed World's website. You can actually see Heifer International's 990, their their tax return, if you have any doubt, though I doubt you do because we're telling you, so it's got to be true. I really love this so much. I've been very excited about getting gifts for the holidays for people, gifts of all kinds. And this one, it's nice how fast and easy it is to make a gift donation because you could choose the type of e-card that's sent and you can include your own message. So it's perfect for last minute birthday gifts or holiday gifts, or just because you're sick of this, the exploitation going on with animals and you want to support an organization. Our hen house, we love a well-fed world. We have been working with them for so many years. They are an international hunger relief and food security organization, advancing plant-based foods and farming to create a sustainable, nourished, and climate-friendly future. Uh, yeah, you can check out their Plants for, and that's the number four, Plants for Hunger campaign at plantsforhunger.org. Love it. Plantsforhunger.org. That is so great. I'm writing that down on a post-it note, right? Now, okay, let's get to our interview. Andrew Lipstein is a New York-based writer. He is the author of Last Resort, The Vegan, and the forthcoming Something Rotten. He will be joining me and Marianne right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars, and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CAF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Welcome to our hen house, Andrew. Welcome to me. Thank you. Welcome to you. Smooth start. Yes. I think <laughs> it's only going to go uphill from here, man. I'm so excited to have you. I can't even tell you. In your 14 years, have any guest ever welcomed themselves? <laughs> Actually, that happened recently. That happened recently. It did? Yeah. Someone I was interviewing. 
I can't, I can't remember who, but yeah, it happened recently. Maybe it's just like the new thing. Clearly, it's the new style. We're trendsetters here. So thank you for trendsetting right here on our hen house. I was just starting to say, Andrew, that when Marianne sent me the review in the New York Times of The Vegan, your book, and I plotsed, both of us plots. We couldn't believe it. We were like, wait, is it a book on how to go vegan? Because if so, I'm jealous because I wrote a book like that. It did not make it. It's the New York Times. <laughs> so let's just jump in with that. Can you start out by just giving those who haven't read it yet a glimpse into the plot or at least the beginning of it? Yeah, happy to. So it centers on a hedge fund manager named Herschel Kane who basically accidentally causes a friend of his wife's great harm during a dinner party and doesn't really feel guilt in a straightforward way for it. And in a way, transmutes that guilt into a desire to be good in other ways in his life, including becoming the titular vegan. It's basically the long and short of it. But of course, him becoming vegan is sort of just the beginning of his journey. Yeah, no. And a lot happens after that. And a lot of it has to do with animals. And I want to cover all of that. There's a lot of other things going on in the book. It's a lot of stuff about hedge funds and about, what is it, quant? Quant hedge funds, quant trading. Yeah. We're not going to talk about that much, but but it will touch on it. But before we get into all of that and all of the plot, I read something that indicated that your own choice to not eat animals was kind of similar to Herschel's and that it was a visceral thing. And I feel like this is a very personal story. And if you don't want to go into it, please don't. I don't want to intrude. But if it's okay with you, can you just tell us if that's right? And tell us as much of that story as you're comfortable with how you started this whole journey of not eating animals? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to tell the story. I became a vegetarian about a little more than four years ago. And it was very surprising to me. I think that morning, I would have never guessed that I would become a vegetarian. I had thought about it like intellectually, but never thought this is something that I'll ever do. And I was just eating dumplings with my wife and looked at the meat and the dumpling and just thought, I don't ever want to do this again. And since then, I haven't eaten meat. It didn't really occur to me at the time. And it has occurred to me since that it wasn't a total coincidence Two years before that, so basically six years ago now, my dad had a traumatic brain injury because he actually choked on meat. And he is today severely handicapped. Wow. And I don't know when that connection came to me. I sort of feel like it wasn't even until I was editing The Vegan or I don't really remember the moment, but it was one of those connections that felt both very obvious and also like too obvious and too neat. And I don't think that we ever make decisions in such an explainable way. And I don't really even consider my not eating meat a decision because it's just something. And we can talk about this and I'm curious about your own stories. But when people ask you, why are you vegan? Or to me, why are you vegetarian? I often struggle to answer because there isn't like an answer that I could put into words. And I really like this idea of like having to explain morality because I feel like moral choices are the things that you can't put into words. They're not things you can build logical arguments about. And my own experience becoming a vegetarian basically made that the ultimate unanswerable question because the person who asked that question wants to hear like either the environment, either animal cruelty, my own health, 
something about factory farm and something about human labor, but it, there is no reason. It's just, it, it comes before, for me, reasoning. It's such an extraordinary answer. I, I mean, I've asked a lot of people that question or a similar question, and I've never heard an answer exactly like that or even close to it, though I think for a lot of people, there is something of a visceral, just we don't know why, it's just a reaction, but almost everybody, like I think mine and yours, Chasman, it has to do with finding out what's happening to animals and thinking about it and making a decision, then going back and forth a little bit and struggling with it and making a decision, no, this is the right thing to do and I want to do it, and then gradually coming to actually really enjoy it. And that's pretty classic. But I've never heard of anybody except for you and Herschel, for whom it was such like this lightning bolt kind of visceral decision. I mean, I assume that that has something to do with why, I mean, you write, so you wanted to write a book, but you chose this particular topic as kind of an effort to come to terms with this decision and to understand it more or to decide not to understand it more. Yeah. I mean, just like connecting my dad's injury to my vegetarianism, when I land on something that I want to write a book about, it's just strictly because I feel compelled to. And I don't think to myself, this will be a good issue, a good plot or a good character to write because it will help me work through something. It's just a visceral reaction like, oh, right. when I think about that idea, I can't wait to write it. And I think that is because I had a lot of and still do have a lot of unresolvable feelings about eating meat, not eating meat, about our relationship to animals, about what it means to be a good person. And so I think when the idea came to me and I just thought like, this is something I can spend a lot of time with that feels kind of limitless to me. And I think that comes from the unresolvable nature of the questions behind it. Well, just to jump in on that, Marianne, I totally agree with what you said about how like for you and me as well, like going vegan was definitely, oh, I learned about what was happening specifically in the dairy and egg industries. But I was vegetarian long before that as I know you were too, and I think a lot of people here. And I think that was more of a visceral thing. I was 18 and yeah. I thought meat was yeah. icky, you know, icky was the word I used. And so I stopped eating it. I didn't know what factory farming was. I didn't care at the time. It, you know, it's not like I cared or didn't. It just wasn't part of my world at the time. So I think that that's really beautifully said. Now, Andrew, did you write this book as part of your effort to come to terms with your own decision to not eat animal flesh? I don't know if I ever felt I needed to come to terms with it. It was just once I decided that it felt like something that I was going to do, maybe to seek to understand it more, but like, it, and I want to hear what y'all think about convincing others to not eat meat. But, you know, my wife, who's in the other room and is probably listening to me now, eats meat. My son eats meat. My wife is pregnant with twins. They will eat meat. And never do I have the impulse to try to convince anyone else in my life not to eat meat. And I wonder if that's because I don't have a reason for it. And to persuade somebody else, you need a reason. I mean, I feel like y'all would more easily call yourselves advocates and want to convince others, but maybe that's also because you have stronger reasoning for why you've gone down that path. Well, I, I think that does make sense. I mean, having thought about it and really have these reasons, but I have to say that the last person for most of us, I, I think I can safely say for most of us, family family's hard. <laughs> Like trying to convince people close to you is actually very hard mm -hmm. for almost everybody, probably for a lot of different reasons. There are a lot of different family dynamics and for whatever. So while, yeah, I would say that almost everybody who listens to our hen house is an advocate and that's really what we do. 
it has to do more with being out in the world than focusing on trying to talk family into changing their habits. So it certainly is very, very lovely. And I envy people who just come to the same realization together. It's a great thing, but I don't think it's uncommon that that doesn't happen. What do you think, Jasmine? Well, I just want to kind of point out a couple of the comments we're getting in the chat here. Karen says, I don't try to convince others either. I think it is counterproductive and find such unreasonable defensiveness to meat and the choice to eat meat that I don't like going down that path for the tension it creates. And yeah, so just relating to what Karen just said, I would agree with that. I I don't think that the ethos of our hen house as a whole is to sort of like bang people over the head with a Satan drumstick. This is one of the reasons we were very curious about your book because we were nervous about like, is this just clickbait? And ultimately I felt like you really got into it in an incredibly nuanced way that a lot of times made me feel really, really seen as someone who does not generally have characters in books reflect my value system. And so there were a few parts in it where I was like, did he steal my diary? I mean, it was really, really beautiful. I want to ask you the question that Tom just sort of alluded to here. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm here to be put on the spot. No, I'm not an angry vegan lesbian, despite what they say about... Yes, I am an angry vegan lesbian, but that's aside the point. Why vegetarian and not vegan? Like, should we send you some care packages of cupcakes or something? Oh, like vegan cupcakes? Yeah, I would say about half the meals I have is vegan, which I know is no... It's not a reasoning at all. I'm a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan. It's funny when you were saying earlier that you became a vegetarian before you became a vegan, and it felt more visceral in that way. There's something so visceral about eating meat that it is almost feels like a display of dominance and comes with all these unintentional like interspecies conflict and all of these unintended significances. Whereas to me, drinking milk or eating eggs, when I really think about it, just seems like perverse, (laughs) as opposed to like wrong. And I sort of think about veganism, I think the same way I thought about vegetarianism before I became a vegetarian. It just seemed like something that I don't feel like I am compelled to do. And I think part of that is because of the same blindness that I had towards vegetarianism that I think we all have towards all moral issues. I don't think that there's not to like go all the way down the road of righteousness, but I feel like every one of us, whether you're a vegan, whether you give 50% of your week to charity, whether you do whatever, you have to be blind to certain things to go on with your life. And to me, veganism is not something that I see as being morally correct. And I'm not saying I think it isn't or I shouldn't. It's just to me along the same lines of, Why don't I give half of my paycheck if I can afford it to people who are starving? It's something I know I should do. There's just that warm blanket of a threshold that I can't pass through. Yeah, actually, my next question was really related to that. But you might have just said that you can't answer that question. So I'll just try it. Because I got this from both the book and from the interview you've done 
how to figure out or the impossibility sometimes of figuring out what is morally required and how there are balances. There are things that are morally required, I think, Mm -hmm. that we all know, hopefully. (laughs) Like, how does something go from being morally ambiguous? A good thing. I mean, I think we would all say it's a good thing, but not morally required, such as giving half your income or just living as some people do, as effective altruists sometimes do, living very simply and giving all of your money to the poor. When does something go from being morally ambiguous, good, but not required to being morally required, like, you know, not murdering somebody? There are lots of things that are morally required. Is it just whether it's against the law? I mean, that can't be right. It can't be like if they change the law, it changed what's moral. So how do we do that? And why have we come to the conclusion that this is morally required? And you've come to the conclusion that this is good, but not something that's... I need you to answer this because it's kind of the whole question. Well, first of all, I don't think anyone cares about the law, right? <laughs> not that not that we want to go against it, but like, uh, I mean, in all of its... Well, in all, I am a lawyer, Andrew. I come from a family of law. Uh, my dad was a lawyer. My mom was a law journalist. It's not... That's not the answer, clearly. No, I mean, I have a very cynical answer. And I do want to underscore that it's one answer, and I don't think it's the answer. And I also don't think it's what the book is proposing, because I think there's a cynical way to read the book and uncynical ways to read the book. But I think that we we feel required to be good in sometimes, possibly always, if you want to look at the world in a certain way, to rid ourselves of negative feelings. And I think when people become enlightened to a cause, often what happens is they become unblinds to the guilt that they have to burden should they not do what they now see as the right thing. And I think when you feel morally compelled to do something, it's because you consider not doing it wrong. And with that wrong comes very tangible emotions. I think when we don't do things that are correct, it's because we don't feel enough emotional cost for actually doing it. We don't feel any guilt. We don't feel like it degrades our own sense of goodness. So yeah, I think we like to think of goodness as something that is a positive addition to our soul, if you believe in that, or who we are as a person. But I think another way of looking at it is when you become enlightened to something, you are realizing the negativity you'll incur if you don't do the right thing. It kind of leaves the sociopaths off the hook because they don't feel bad about anything. So for them, it's fine. Well, that's why they're usually, if they want to be somewhat successful in their fields, because they (laughs) don't have to, they don't have all those pesky questions of integrity the rest of us suffer through. Totally. I just totally agree. And I feel like there are so many more sociopaths out there than we know about. But kind of switching gears, Andrew, what would you expect would be different about the way our listeners who are by and large vegan and and vegan because of animals would take from the book rather than meat eaters and how they might digest the book, as it were? Yeah, it's funny because the book is obviously not written for vegans, but I do feel like vegans, I think, would have the hardest time with it in a good way. I think the book would ask a vegan to consider the moment that we were just talking about when becoming vegan went from something they didn't feel they needed to do to when they needed to do it and why exactly that change took place within them. And Mm -hmm. something that's a common theme throughout the book is like language and reasoning And I think over time, when we make decisions, we have a story that we tell ourselves and other people, and we all do it no matter what, like, why do you live in New York? Why did you marry your spouse? Why did you decide to have kids? Why do you work in this industry? 
Why do you take up this hobby? We have very easy answers to that that belie the actual truth of it, which often isn't explainable to a stranger in even a few minutes. And I don't think anyone is ever done revisiting why they've made a big life choice. And I hope the book makes vegans inquire within to like, why exactly are they vegan? And if the answer is something that they could like publish an op-ed on, to me, that isn't a good enough reason because it has to be personal to them and what happened in their life that made that time right for them to make that switch. Hmm. I think maybe it's just the way my brain works, but I just think of it more as as just a decision I make like any other decision. Maybe I could write that op-ed, you know, and that wouldn't be good enough. But I found out what was happening to animals. It was terrible. It's beyond, I mean, as you know, because you put it in the book, which was mm-hmm. really, really great that you put all that stuff in the book. So people would unexpectedly come across all this information about what's happening to animals. I found out what it was happening to animals and it haunted me. I didn't know whether there was anything I could actually do about it, but I at least didn't want to participate in it. And so I stopped eating them. A lot of decisions about what you're going to do in life have to do with balance, how hard it is as opposed to what the benefit is. And as it turned out, it wasn't that hard, though it takes effort to get to the place where it's not that hard. Maybe it's just looking back on it. It seems like it was a very easy decision. And speaking of the stuff that you put in the book, I know as part of your research, you spoke to Sol Eubanks. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. Can you talk a bit about that and what you knew before, what you found out, and how you decided about how much to put into the book, how how much information you wanted in there without it becoming like a diatribe? Yeah, I I actually remember speaking to Sol. was actually in the parking lot of the rehab center that my dad was in after he had his brain injury. And I remember coming away from that conversation thinking just how logical he was It was not on the order of faith that I think is how I consider it. And I think some other vegans and vegetarians consider it a matter of faith. It was like he was extremely even handed and like was also very empathetic to those who weren't vegans and vegetarians. And to me, it seemed like his veganism came from empathy in its purest form. And that empathy also enabled him to understand how other people think, which I think is very interesting or ironic about some people who are vegans or have other causes that they're very big advocates for, which is that if ever you find yourself saying, I can't understand why other people do this, I can't understand how they could be so cruel. Like the focus of that sentence is the first few words, and it's extremely important. You don't understand how other people are thinking who don't agree with you. And that's actually your problem. And when I spoke to Sol, I was blown away by how empathetic he was to people who, who didn't agree with him. And that obviously extends to like our whole country. And, you know, maybe there's not just easy two sides of things, but I think we have a really hard time not making moral judgments about people who don't agree with our political thought when it comes down to our inability to be empathetic with the other side. Because I think what's interesting about especially the biggest political issues, is that they're moral on both sides. Just to be totally forthright, I am liberal, I'm a Democrat, I'm extremely pro-choice. I think it's extremely interesting that both pro-lifers and pro-choicers, not a term, but are both making a moral argument. I think we like to think that we're often the moral side and the other side has their priorities wrong or they favor things like freedom or capitalism that are easy to blame on if if you go too far down that road. But I I find it so interesting when there's two opposing sides that are both moral because it speaks to the general moral relativism we have to fight with. And when we don't see what other people think, that's actually our lack of empathy. You're you're making me think of, you're familiar with Peter Singer, 
the philosopher who wrote Animal Liberation. I'm not. That's okay. He's he was like one of the top 100 people of the last century, according to Time. So he wrote this kind of iconic book called Animal Liberation in the 1970s. It recently came out with a re-release. He's a very well-known philosopher who happens to have put animal rights on the map, but he is philosopher famous as well. So animal liberation for a lot of people has kind of paved the way for the modern animal protection movement. And he ultimately went vegan, the story goes, and we did confirm this when we interviewed him. He was sitting across from someone who was eating and didn't have animal flesh on their plate. And Peter Singer said, why aren't you eating meat? And his friend said, I'm just uncomfortable with the way animals are treated. And so to your point about what Soul said, you know, the I statement, and then Peter Singer went, huh? And then like wrote Animal Liberation (laughs) and 50 years later, here we are. So I don't know why that story kept coming into my head. And so just sticking with the idea of morality for just a moment, is eating meat morally wrong? Are you asking my opinion? Yeah, I'm asking for your opinion, not for the opinion of our flock. (laughs) But I'm just curious how you would fall on that. I don't want to make it seem like I'm sidestepping the question. I will say eating meat is morally wrong to me. Going back to my earlier sort of loosely threaded rant about politics, I think that it's very possible that there are multiple moralities that are irreconcilable, unsquarable, And both of them are as truthful as morality has to be. I don't think that there is such a thing as a moral truth because you could have two people doing exact opposite actions for moral reasons. I did Google Peter Singer and I see that his political party is the Greens, not the Green, but the Greens, which makes me feel like he's just a salad fanatic or something. That's funny. It's because I don't know. Is that because he's Australian, Marianne? And maybe it's... The Getting to this question of is eating meat morally wrong? And obviously people take different positions. And one of the most important things is to, you know, we seem to have lost the ability to talk across issues. I mean, to not just toe the party line on lots of issues. But the thing that makes Herschel's behavior so bizarre to people, I think, is mostly because he's not just because he's come out on the other side, but because he's taking the issue seriously. And there are a lot of issues that people take seriously and they can come out on different sides. But I just wonder how you feel. But I just feel like people don't usually argue with you about the morality of eating meat. It's not usually a position. It's like pro-choice and pro-life. They just kind of give themselves a pass. Like this is an issue about which they kind of don't have to take a position. And I just wonder, do you think that the reason most people aren't vegan is because they think animals don't matter? That doesn't seem right. I mean, people care about animals. I mean, not everybody, but, you know, most people care. So why is it that people kind of just don't take this issue as seriously as other issues? Yeah, I don't think it has anything to do with how how seriously they take the livelihood of animals. I'm sure there's a stat out there about pet ownership and veganism, and I'm sure they're not nearly as correlated as you would expect based on... No, not even remotely. Yeah. Just to go back to the idea of like things that we know are wrong, but forgive ourselves for, I think it's the same reason why we don't give so much of our money to charity. 
I think there's this idea that there's a weighing of pro and con. And Marianne, you earlier said it's a decision like any other. And I did want to go into that because I don't feel like it's a weighing of pros and cons. I think once you more or less see the light, not to use the rhetoric of religion, but I don't think there's like, if the cons were a little higher, maybe you wouldn't make that decision. Like if meat was more delicious or like if it was cheaper or like your favorite restaurant now only serve meat. Like, I don't feel like it's like it's an equation. Yeah, that's true. At least now it's true. I'm not sure in the beginning it's as true. Staying vegan is a much stronger impulse than going vegan. What, what do you mean by staying vegan is a much stronger impulse? Like right now I'm vegan. Mm-hmm. Like if meat suddenly became really, I mean, I always love the taste of meat. So that's not an issue. Like, and, and if it suddenly became really cheap and was everywhere and they were giving it away for free, yeah, I wouldn't change my mind. I mean, I wouldn't, no matter what happens, if mm-hmm. I couldn't get vegetables ever, I still wouldn't stop being vegan. It would be very hard. But when I first went vegan, the weighing might have been a little closer, like, because it didn't happen all at once. It wasn't like a thunderbolt as it kind of was with you. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, decisions I made. And if the pros and cons might have been weighed differently, but that's not that important a point. Finish the thought you were going to make. I, I am wondering something though, Marianne, which is, I guess you will probably likely never undo your decision to go vegan. But it seems like we slightly maybe disagree as far as like how much of a decision it is. And I don't think it's a decision. And by decision, I mean like a weighing of pros against cons. But to like challenge that in your worldview, I'm curious, like if we found out that, for example, mushrooms, fungi are actually way more intelligent than we thought. I mean, a lot of people think fungi is like somewhere between plants and animals and how they operate and like how smart they are. If we realize that they feel pain and they, through science, became more and more similar to animals, at what point would you stop eating mushrooms? And then just before you answer that, what happens when we get there with plants as well? Like at what point do you take back your eating of things that feel pain and are intellectual? And does that feel like a decision or does that feel like something that is, because to me, that's like how that, the only way that could actually be a decision is if like, it's actually something that matters, like your own survival, your own, your own health. If you, if you, if you need to reclaim your own health by eating something that feels pain, like, like, is there a threshold for that? Uh, yeah. Welcome to our world, Andrew. <laughs> like uh, you're now in the vegan world because there's a lot, really a lot of very high level conversations about insects. Not so much about mushrooms. I don't think there's a lot of people who think that mushrooms are sentient, but you never know. Can I just say though, I think the insect conversation lets you off the hook a little bit because you don't go to your favorite restaurant and get served insects. Well, that's coming. Believe me. When you're a vegan and you go to a restaurant with friends, you're always eating mushrooms or nowadays squash, right? So like, let's say it's mushrooms and not something that like 95% of the population finds repulsive on a base level. Yeah, but I yeah, I mean, the, the insect conversation has a lot to do with incidental, you know, we, we kill gazillions and gazillions of insects all the time for many reasons. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's fine. I mean, yeah, like that would be hard, you know, then you have to make decisions like you have to survive. We're on this planet and this planet is designed in very cruel and horrifying ways in many ways. And what we can try to do is reduce the harm we do. We can't reduce it to zero. I mean, people are always attacking vegans because they say, well, small animals are killed when vegetables are harvested. So you're not really vegan. Well, of course you're not. You can't live on the planet completely innocently. That's not Mm -hmm. something that has been given to us. So you do the best with the information and the facts that you have. And there's a lot of conversations about this, a lot of conversations about, well, fish, people are pretty 
now settled that finfish do feel pain and that's a problem. But, you know, about seafood, about oysters. I mean, vegans talk about this shit all the time. I don't know what I would do if I was caught in the problem of having to kill somebody sentient in order to live. I guess you start to think as people are when it comes to insects about different levels of sentience and what we really mean by sentient. We haven't really had to do that so far because the animals that we eat are obviously not just sentient, but intelligent and and have real lives. And so we haven't gotten to that, but that you might start to think about that sort of thing. You might Mm -hmm. start to think about how you can limit your consumption of animals, but no, you know, even as now they do kill out, they do kill lots of animals harvesting vegetables. It's not possible to live on the earth innocently. Whoever made it up, And I'm sorry if there is actually somebody who made it all up because I think it's a little psychotic. We're in a position of having to survive on a planet where all you can do is try to do the least harm. And veganism is kind of a kind of a a way of doing that. It's not a perfect way. It's never perfect. It's never harm free. And for people to pretend that it's ridiculous. And also, I do think there is a balance. I mean, there's a big difference between going back to aside from you actually have to harm somebody. But the difficulty in being vegan, like for me now, it's very, very easy to be vegan. But for a lot of people, it isn't. Is it good activism? Is it even fair for us to criticize people who would have a very hard time living this way, who are working three jobs, who can't afford much good food, who have to work? Of course not. That is not what this is all about. Mm -hmm. But trying to make it easier for people to live the way they want to live. I think that's a really nice thing. And having this conversation with people who are struggling, who would like to not harm animals in their life and and are struggling to do so and make it easier. That's a good way to live. All right. Now I'm rambling. I've covered 12 different topics. Can I, can I ask you one more question? Uh, yeah. Just because based on what you just said, I'm very curious. We are here to interview you, Andrew. Just, just keep, keep, keep that in mind. I know. I know. <laughs> this will be the last time. I did welcome myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did welcome myself. I should have known what was coming. <laughs> Would you eat meat if it meant that two or three people who currently eat meat didn't? Well, you find those people and then I'll decide. Oh, no, come on. You have to answer the question. Could I eat meat? If, you mean for the rest of my life? Well, it's kind, you know, it's kind of a hypothetical. Would you rather kill your brother or your sister? Uh, you know, like... Also a good question to ask some people. <laughs> you find out a lot about it. You know, I probably... The logical side of it would say yes, and the visceral side of it would say no. And I am honestly not sure which side would win. I mean, there is both a visceral side and a logical side. I probably would say no, because I don't think turning two or three people vegan is really like one person's veganism, two people's veganism doesn't have a huge effect on how many animals are killed for food. You have to turn a lot of people vegan to actually influence market choices. So one person's veganism is not really making that much of a difference, but I don't know. And honestly, I do think it's kind of a dumb question. You know, Marin, I really, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed your answer and found it illuminating until the last bit. I have to say. Oh my god! All right, can we get back to the book? Can we, can we talk about the book? Because I want to talk about this question I have about this relationship between guilt and intent. Because guilt is a big mm-hmm. motivator for you. That's what's motivating Herschel. Though I think there's also some fear in there because it is against the mm-hmm. one drug people and then have them harm themselves. But he didn't intend for her to hit her head. He just wants her to shut up. Mm-hmm. 
and so he didn't intend anything really bad in in his business. He 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 doesn't intend to destroy the market. That's a knowledgeable side effect of what he's trying to do. But he really just wants to get rich. His intent is to be incredibly rich. And people don't intend for animals to suffer. They just want to eat. They just want lunch. Just because your motive isn't bad or your intent isn't bad doesn't mean you can't do big bad things to get there if you're ignoring the implications. But you can't just run someone over even if your only reason is you want to get somewhere on time. I mean, you have to think of not just what you intend to do, but the effect of what you're doing. Do you have this assumption that as long as you don't intend the harm, you're not really guilty? Because I don't think that's right. Marianne, I have to say that you're saying now that effects matter beyond intent. But what you just said before, which you did call a stupid question, (laughs) is that if you were to turn two people vegan and you gave up your veganism, to me, that's effects. If you really care about effects. But I made clear that I don't think it has an effect on the suffering of the animal, which is the only thing that matters. It's too small. Yeah, yeah. It's too small, but and, you know, not to like tweak the thought experiment, but we could get that number high enough to where it does make a difference. And then I'd be curious. I think that changes the calculus. But to me, intent and your previous answer to the question, which I thought was really good, as I said, until the last bit, was um, (laughs) that there's an intellectual level and then there's a more, I forget how you phrase it. Visceral. Visceral, yeah. For me, intent is the thing that ties your soul into the decision We can forgive ourselves for everything but effect, which is really important, as you said, if there isn't intent, because, you know, we just kind of dissed on the law earlier. That cares a lot about who caused something to happen, even if there wasn't intent, usually, because there's such a thing as negligence. But for me, intent is the thing that gives you stake in the game on a soul level, on a morality level. That is when your own personal goodness can be sullied or bolstered or done anything like that's when there's morality is at play to me when intent is taken out of the equation it becomes one of these dry questions that i just asked about what decision would you make just based on effects in the outer world we go from first person to third person when you're thinking about what happened which is something that actually happens in the book but for me like intent i don't think anyone does anything wrong to themselves when they don't have intent how many times do we tell ourselves to help us get through a time when we cause someone else pain by saying, but you didn't mean to, but I didn't mean to. It's both an incredibly stupid and useless thing to say, but at the same time, it really matters. And I think because it matters on the level of morality and it doesn't matter on the level of third person, real world, how are other people living? And that real world version can feel a little bit sterile and a little bit dry, but to me, it's actually the most empathetic way to live. Because if you are not thinking in the first person and not caring about your own soul and not caring about your own morality, that's actually achieving the type of empathy that some of the world's best religions try to push us towards. All right, I think I must have missed something because it, I feel like that means you have to be vegan. How do you mean? Well, if, if the good way to live is to look at your effect on others, not just on whether you personally had the bad intent or not. Mm -hmm. The effect on others of not being vegan is that animals suffer and die. But Marianne, I sort of feel like you just said the opposite because you said that even turning two people vegan wouldn't actually make a difference in the real world. But what it does do is give your own soul Yeah, well, that's a nuanced thing, because I do think that being vegan in the world does matter. I mean, as a practical thing. 
I think that it's hard to make the argument that you actually saving a chicken by having tofu for dinner. It's hard to make this direct comparison, but as I think all our listeners know, being vegan in the world, I think in many different ways, even though the behemoth of animal agriculture is so enormous, it's hard for one consumer to affect the actual output. In, in many other ways, being vegan influences, as we've seen, increases in the amount of vegan food that's available, which increases the number of vegans. So it's more of a global thing, but I think it does have an effect. But it, I do hear you that I do think that it's hard to argue that each individual's choice to eat has a direct effect on how many animals suffer and die. I kind of forgot where I started off on this. But yeah, do we have to look at effects or do we have to look at our personal, whether we had bad intent? And I think the, the law does look at both. I mean, it doesn't have to be intent, though. It can. I do think negligence is a problem. I think in, in the book, Herschel didn't intend to hurt her. He was negligent, really. But I think he acted badly, and I think he felt guilty. One of the most interesting things about the book for me was how you depict the animals, in particular the dog and the way in which they communicate with Herschel. I'm afraid I'm very literal, and I just assumed that this was you, the writer, creating a character, i.e. the dog, and not Herschel, the character, having a delusion about what the dog is thinking. And I've since found out that this is not everyone's assumption. And what others assume, you're letting us witness another aspect of Herschel's madness. So which is it? Yeah, I would say it's the second, but I wouldn't say it's madness. I think we often project onto animals. I think that a lot of pet ownership to me is, uh, <laughs> as Vicky picks up her dog, as I see dogs in the background. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think the relationship of love we often have with pets is a spectrum between projection and uh, a truer form of love. You know, we were talking earlier about dog ownership and people who eat meat. Like, how can you square those ideas unless you're delusional or crazy or just contradictory in a way that's like blatant to others, but not you? Herschel is totally projecting onto that dog and doing so so the dog can give him what he needs, which is recognition of his guilt, which we normally get from other humans, but that wasn't available to him. So he did a sort of deranged thing and it worked. But crossing that bridge was something that opened up a bit of a Pandora's box for him. But yeah, I, I wonder if there's a, I mean, I'm, I'm asking because y'all are the experts. I don't know enough about veganism, but is it a big debate in the world about pet ownership, whether it's right or wrong or? There is, but you know, it's one of those debate, debates that goes on in the abstract because there are so many homeless animals. And I don't know of anybody who argues that pet ownership is so much of a problem that we should kill all of them instead of try to give them the best lives that we can manage. I think most vegans have adopted animals. But yeah, I would say that there is a debate. It's not the top issue given the horrors of what, no. what is done to animals. But yeah, that's certainly a question that comes up of whether we could possibly give them good lives, whether the lives they live are adequate, whether they're being bred into odd realities that are mm -hmm. kind of halfway between what they were and who we want them to be. Lots of different things. But as I say, it's mostly in the abstract because there's so many of them and they desperately need homes. Well, and it also depends, like dogs are obviously domesticated. So I think there's a much different conversation to be had talking about cats. We did this to them. You know, mm -hmm. we created their own prison. Now we have to take care of them. And dogs who are 
by and large, I mean, unless you're talking about like a coyote, domesticated and really get a lot out of being in Vicky's lap, for example. Mm -hmm. And also, I would say that if a vegan was high, it was like 2 a.m. and they'd been hanging out all night, maybe they would start to talk about the idea of pet ownership as a word or as a term, and they might get really heated about it. Oh, yeah. Owner is not a, a favored word. Right. And also pet with that same group of people who's high at 2 a.m. would also be like, what about the word pet? I personally don't care that much. Like, I get it. Why do we have to be high at 2 a.m.? Well, I guess, you know, I'm projecting. <laughs> Although it's only five. No, I'm kidding. I'm not high yet. Anyway. Let's move on, if that's okay. I have so much to talk about. And I just want to reiterate what Jasmine mm -hmm. said, that I, I kind of thought also that the dog was a character. I didn't think of the dog as uh, just Herschel's projection. But one of my very favorite things about the book was the way you wrote mm -hmm. the animals. Because it's really, really hard to write animals. I mean... They either end up being like in kids' books that they're just substitute people. They talk like people and they're just acting people or they don't talk at all. And, and when you write about them, they, they're just sort of in the abstract. And I, I loved the way that you wrote the animals, that it was very vague, but you could imagine it, it, it didn't overly project into who you thought these animals were, but it, it seemed very real to me. So even though I, I had it wrong and I thought that they were real, either way, whether they are a projection of Herschel's or real animals, I, I thought that was masterful. I really did. And, you know, we haven't gotten to the ending yet, and I have 10,000 more questions. Yeah, a little announcement for those of you listening, either when this airs or who are here right now with us. We are going to get into some of the spoilers now or like the main spoiler, I would say, if that's OK with you, Andrew, is that OK with you? Yeah. Okay. So if you don't want to hear this, then listen to it after you've finished the book. Marianne, go ahead. All right. I got this question from somebody. I won't say who it was, but I really think it's true. It does seem like people could easily take this book as indicating that veganism is this sort of mental illness that gets cured at the end and everything's fine. Do you think that that's something that people take from this? Because he did kind of go crazy. He became vegan. He saw animals and then he got over his guilt and he was fine as if it was just a, an episode of mental illness. Do you think that people read it like that from your conversations with people and is that how you meant it? Short answer, no. There's something about belonging to an identity group or having an identity and then always wanting or needing other people who have that identity to be the best people ever. We all have multiple identities and there are other people who identify as we do who are not perfect. 100% of people are people. I don't think Herschel is indicative of what a vegan is. I don't think a large percentage of vegans become vegans because they've caused someone a great injury. I don't think people even become vegans because of one big event that gave them guilt. To me, the ending, you know, when he eats the meat at the end, he doesn't say it tasted wonderful. He doesn't say, I'm so glad I could eat meat again. I'm, I'm so glad I'm done with being a dumb vegan. That bowl of spinach and chickpeas and strawberries tasted like air. The last words of the book, I hope I'm not forgetting it, is it tasted fine. And to me, he had just come down from basically a spiritual journey. And there was a combination of him sort of coming back to his reality of who he was. And because of that, he isn't experiencing that elevated life that he had just experienced. He, he's eating meat again, but it tastes fine to him. That's not a happy ending. 
You know, like if, if you're talking about a story where two people are, are rekindling after years of being apart and you said they embraced each other and they kissed mm-hmm. and their lives were fine, that's not a happy ending. Fine is not a word that we use for redemption. Herschel is in no way redeemed. He's, he's back to earth. His earth, which is rationality, which is not needing to be a vegan, which is not caring about animals' lives in the way that he thought he did. To me, that isn't saying what he experienced was wrong. I don't think he is necessarily better off for being off of that journey. So the book is not saying that vegans are insane. And thank God Herschel stopped being insane. Yeah. And I didn't take it that way. Well, first of all, I just want to say that I have been vegan for 20 years and vegetarian before that. And if I ate meat right now, I would think it tasted fine too. Like it was never the taste of it for me. I could see, you know, in that way I was reading it and was like, yeah, I mean, it would taste fine. I mean, if if we're just like really picking apart the word taste, but for me, that's not even what it's about at all because we have the taste replicated. For me, the ending was not unsatisfying as an ending. It wasn't unsatisfying for me. It was really sad to me though, because it was proof of a moral failure. And it turns out that Herschel's veganism and his impulse to destroy his algorithm wasn't a recognition of his moral duty to others, but only a way of paying a debt. And once it was paid in his mind, he didn't owe any moral duty anymore. Is that right? And do you think that that's how people see morality? No, I think actually very uh, uncynically, whatever the opposite of cynical is, to me, him eating meat is saying what he experienced isn't actually what veganism is. Because he was able Mm. to become not a vegan by what he ended up doing was admitting what he did to Franny and getting the form of redemption from her. He no longer needed to be vegan. To me, that's the most uncynical way of looking at the book from a vegan point of view is saying he was never a vegan. Fascinating. Because if that could satisfy the moral urge, then he was never a vegan. That's one way to look at it. Another very cynical way to looking at it is maybe vegans are people who just never found their redemption like he did. That's not how I feel either. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, for me, sticking the landing of this book was to create as much moral ambiguity for there to be always two ways of seeing it. And I think those two sides I just said are kind of two polar opposite ways of looking at the ending, which one says he was never a vegan because veganism is not this easy moral equation. The other way is maybe it Mm -hmm. is. Maybe people who are vegans haven't found balance to their own moral equation. That's so funny because when I finished... I have to say, I think he was a vegan because he didn't need animals. I disagree. I think I'm with Andrew on this. I think that it was indicative that he wasn't. And also you just blew my mind open. So I have to think about that. But when I finished the book, Gretchen, if you're here, say something in the chat. But my friend Gretchen, who's a flock member and might be here, we had a back and forth on text about it. And we both felt completely opposite about the end. And I think we represented both of what you just said. I think I could see a vegan reading this Mm -hmm. and being really, really upset about the ending. And I wasn't. I felt like he was. Well, maybe that's just because of my worldview. I mean, I'm sure it is. But most importantly, Andrew, if it had ended with him staying vegan, would you have sold any books? You wouldn't have. Yeah, there you go. I'm just telling you. <laughs> oh, I mean, talk about being cynical. The ending of a book is what sells books. It's other things. I think the ending could have been him staying vegan as long as, honestly, it was done in a way that created as much ambiguity to me. 
to me, it wasn't a sure thing that this was the only way to create an ending that I would have found suitable. But I do feel honestly extremely excited that you were able to disagree with somebody about it in a big way. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a sign of a success. Like, I don't want people to say, I talked, I spoke to my friend about it who read it too. We both agreed that this was the way to see the book. And we both really loved it. And like, it really spoke to how we feel about the world. Like you want to hear me and someone who I have a predisposition to, to think similarly to because of something we believe in couldn't agree on this. Like, I, I love hearing that. Yeah, I totally agree. I have one more question as an author. I have a question about being able to sell a book called The Vegan because I have had to bend over backwards in meetings with editors about getting the word vegan in a title. And tell me how that was greenlit because I'm taking notes. <laughs> I want to approach your editors next. Well, I think, I think there's two answers to the question. The first is that when I sold the book, first of all, I sold it to my editor who, who had already bought my first book. So he was already interested in what I was writing, but I actually sold the book under a different title. And the title of the book was Flashing Urine, which is in the epigraph. I think one of the reasons why the title works is because not that it's ironic, but it is not. And any title or cover that can make a reader think twice or contradicts itself in some way, I think is useful. Like the cover is of one and all eating another, like obviously works against the vegan. And however the book was going to be presented was in a way that made it clear that this isn't just a book that is pro-veganism or like about how great it is to be a vegan. Yeah, I think especially for, for fiction, like the title can only work if it works against the reader's expectations. Mm -hmm. So maybe if you were writing something that a reader would expect the word vegan to appear in, and not something about a quant hedge fund guy, mm. the word vegan would be less expected, which isn't to say that I agree with whoever told you you don't want the word vegan in there. But Did you always know how it was going to end? No, definitely not. You know, you said one of the ways to take it is that Herschel was never truly vegan. And I kind of said, that's not how I took it. And I, I'm still thinking about that. And I really don't. I mean, I think he went there. Like he might've been a little, he was having an episode, clearly. He wasn't totally in his right mind, but he wasn't crazy. And he totally went there, but like it was a foreign place for him and he left it. But one of the things that struck me is that he was completely alone with it. Like he didn't know anybody. I mean, there was his, you know, next door neighbor who was vegetarian, but that wasn't a real relationship. And mm -hmm. that seems like a really big factor in not just in veganism, but in morality in general, like kind of groupthink. If groupthink goes against like a certain kind of moral decision, it doesn't feel important. And I think that's something that animal rights advocates really struggle with a lot. Do you think that had anything to do with the fact that he was just whirling around Manhattan doing yeah. completely crazy things, completely on his own? He didn't have anybody to talk to about this, but he had real thoughts about animals. Well, I think that aloneness was actually important for him because part of it was about he had this extreme moral deficit and he needed to feel morally superior because of it. I think a true vegan doesn't want to feel superior to other people. They want other people to feel like them. You know, that's so true. That's well said. Yeah. If you're a real vegan, you hope that you don't have to feel morally superior because you hope that the people around you are making that choice with you. And this is, again, on the side of uncynicism. Herschel was never a vegan. This isn't what veganism is. His version of it, he needed to feel better than other people. And throughout the book, he like locates the moral failings of other people because he needs to, because for him, he has to feel better than other people. And to me, that's not a truthful version of advocacy or a moral choice of any sort. 
So what's he up to right now? Is he vegan? He's, he's not. He's not. Vegan. He might be having vegan food for dinner, though, or like right. ordering the bean curd on the menu and just being like, this isn't bad. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I love how non-vegans or non-vegetarians even always like I had a mushroom burger. It actually didn't taste like shit. You know, like it's always like that's the bar. Have you tried this? Tempeh? I know. Or the fact that like, you know, a non-vegan or a non-vegetarian has some vegan cheese and it happens to be terrible because there are like a hundred vegan cheese brands. Yeah. And then they're like, vegan cheese is horrible. But then they'll have like, uh, you know, cow-based cheese and they'll be like, oh, I don't really like that. And they won't have that kind again. They don't like throw all of dairy under the bus. It's just funny to me, but these are the kinds of things we find amusing. <laughs> so we will go into the Q&A in just a second for our bonus. But as we're concluding the main interview, Andrew, I just want to say thank you so much. I know that you said at the very beginning of, chatting, I think before we even hit record that you haven't had too many interviews where you're kind of deep diving on the vegan stuff. So I hope it was painless enough for you. Despite being told you had a stupid question, I hope that you had fun. And that, um, <laughs> and and we really appreciate it. I mean, you're really a, a, quite the trooper for going there with us. So I just wanted to extend my gratitude to you. And thank you so much for joining us on our hen house. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for, for your thoughtful questions. I mean, I honestly feel like we could talk for eight hours Same. right now. And I would, because I have as many questions for y'all. So I really appreciate your thoughtful questions. And I wish we had more time to talk, but I'm Same. very interested in what your listeners want to ask, especially Tom, who's been chomping at the bit, it seems. Yeah, I'm a little worried about Tom. I'm worried about Tom. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, yeah, Andrew, next time Marianne and I are in the city, let's like go get some bean curd or something. <laughs> yes, I do know all the great vegan places near me. Hey everyone, Jasmine here to remind you that we're in the midst of our year-end fundraising season. If you enjoy our podcasts and believe in the change-making power of vegan indie media, please show your support with a tax-deductible donation to our hen house. The best part is all contributions, modest or massive, made between now and December 31st will be matched up to $25,000, but only if we make our goal. So go to ourhenhouse.org slash support to see our new membership options or to make a one-time donation. Or brand new this year, you can text us to donate. Just text HENHOUSE to 53555. That's H-E-N-H-O-U-S-E, no space, to 53555. We appreciate you so much and couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much for making the world a kinder place. Surprising. Our first story, it's really, a do well, the title is a doozy. I, I, I don't know what was going on here. The title of this, of, of this particular story, which is from Watt Agnet, is Animal Agriculture Alliance Making Donation, Participating in Giving Tuesday on November 28th. And, you know, that's nice that they're giving money away, but that's not what this story is about. But I really think that the person who wrote it was as confused as the rest of us may be to find out that the Animal Agriculture Alliance is actually a, an official 501c3 not-for-profit, and they're getting donations on uh, <laughs> on Giving Tuesday, specifically from the U.S. Poultry and Egg Association, which is going to set up a matching fund for up to $100,000 just for Giving Tuesday. And so, you know, they're obviously raking it in. 
the purpose of of the Animal Agriculture Alliance, which as you, you you'll be able to understand why it is a charitable organization when you hear its purpose. And this is according to Nat Morris, who's the president of U.S. Poultry and Egg. The organization continues to monitor animal rights extremist tactics, strategies, and campaigns to keep our farmers informed and prepared for potential threats. They're also a united voice for the farm and food communities calling out misinformation and setting the record straight. Yeah, well, that's a charity for you. <laughs> oh, my God. Heat stress is a worldwide concern. Did you know that? What a sh- what a shocker. This is from Horde's Dairy Man by one Caitlin Allen. As she starts off by saying, this summer was Earth's hottest on record. I used to know that the, that the industry is actually acknowledging climate change, I guess, you know, thanks for small mercies. For dairy cattle around the world and the farmers that take care of them, that heat made producing high-quality milk more challenging, and the trend of more days of high heat is only predicted to continue in the coming decades. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> that is true. So they need to... That what is the goal for the dairy industry here? You might think it would be to like you know stop raising cows and putting all that methane into the air and and causing climate change, but no, they need to combat heat stress, and there's a reason for that because cows that are heat stressed produce less milk, have more mastitis, contract more illnesses, and reproduce less efficiently. Well, we wouldn't want that, would we? First step: provide some sort of shade. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like wow. There's a high-tech solution. God forbid to think of like all of these animals currently don't have shade. All right, sufficient water. That's the next step. These people really are on top of their game, aren't they? Of course, there's a genetic side too. So we could breed them to have a more heat-tolerant hair coat. And uh, you sometimes using indigenous cattle and buffalo are better because they have higher heat tolerances. That's from India. She concludes by saying it may require adjustments in how we look at dairy farming, but addressing heat stress is critical for the dairy industry to supply the nutrients it has to populations around the world. Most of those populations are, uh, you know, lactose intolerant, but what the hell. Better tackling that problem is a win for cows, farmers, the climate, and consumer. Uh, maybe not so much. They're causing climate change. All right. Our final story is from the farm babe. She likes to call herself the farm babe. And this is Michelle Miller. She writes on Ag Daily. I like this story because I like when they squabble with each other. Purdue Chicken's new ad stirs distrust in consumer perception. She's pissed off at Purdue. And there's a reason. Now, I don't want to sound like I think Purdue is is a good company or a champion for the animals. But recently, apparently, according to her, according to the farm babe, Purdue Chicken released a video ad about antibiotic usage and competitor companies' choices to move from the no antibiotics ever, which is called NAE, that's a thing that you'd see on Purdue packages, I guess, to a production program that's more aligned with the best animal welfare practices. Uh, Okay, like Purdue is sticking with no antibiotics and they are advertising the fact that their competitors are not. And she's pissed off because, because of the animal welfare issues. She's long respected Purdue Farms, she points out, because of their efforts to be a leader in animal welfare. <laughs> oh my God. But she recently lost some respect for them. I, I, you know, I know how that feels. I've occasionally lost some respect for them myself. For Purdue, it is published commercial concerning a competitor 
she doesn't name the competitor, who has chosen to adjust its NAE program. All right, so that's its No Antibiotics Ever program, and they've chosen to adjust it by administering antibiotics. Yeah, that would be an adjustment. Uh, She wants to unpack this and get some of the issues. It's a lot of false and misinformation about animal agriculture and agriculture in general that we fight daily. The main reason is that only 1.3% of the American population is involved in agriculture. That's her reason. My reason is that they keep lying to us. That's why why there's there's a lack of trust. Uh, And that's the source of the false information. Then she like totally gets off the antibiotic issue and points to other things. Uh, Have you looked at a package of chicken in the grocery store and it says non-GMO? I have not. You will be surprised to hear looked at a package of chicken in the grocery store. I try to avoid that that part of the of, of the grocery store. The smell alone is is horrifying, but the sadness is just brutal. But I have not seen that they say non-GMO, which does seem ridiculous. So if they are saying that, I agree with her that since there's no such thing as GMO poultry, like that's false advertising. So yeah, let's get after them, um, whoever they are. And other trends is that 76% of the population believes that hormones and steroids are used in poultry production, and that's false. According to her, the use of hormones and steroids has been against the law since 1956. Of course, it's not against the law in cattle production, so you can understand why people get confused exactly what dead animal has been given steroids or hormones. 75% of people also believe there are antibiotics in the chicken protein they purchase. Well, maybe that's true. I don't know. But If people think that administering antibiotics to animals is bad, that is certainly a good thing to think. And if they think that means there's still antibiotics in the chicken that might be, or in the chicken flesh, that, you know, that I I guess they might believe that. And, you know, I don't think that's true. And she goes to some trouble to point out that it's not true. But the real, the big problem, like, doesn't have anything to do with what's in the chicken that people are eating in the chicken flesh that people are eating, it, it has to do with the fact that when you administer antibiotics to, to animals, you weaken the ability of those antibiotics to fight the germs and, and weaken the ability of antibiotics to, to continue to be effective to fight bacteria. And that's the big problem. Shouldn't talk about that or at what percentage of people understand that that's true. I don't care whether people understand whether it's true or not. That's the problem. Like we're all going to die of something because because they keep feeding these chickens uh, all these antibiotics. All right, many consumers, she says, believe the no antibiotics practice is for the betterment of the animal. No, they don't. <laughs> like I'm sorry, but people who are buying chicken flesh do not worry about the betterment of the animal, and that's not what it's for. It's to stop the misuse of antibiotics so they don't lose. I know I'm repeating myself. But in reality, she says, it's animal cruelty at the highest level. All of a sudden, we're very worried about animal cruelty here. And she goes and she talks about the five freedoms. Freedom from hunger and thirst, freedom from discomfort, freedom from pain, injury, or disease, freedom to express normal behavior, freedom from fear and distress. These are the five freedoms that are proposed should be uh, applied to animals. Purdue recognizes the five freedoms, she points out, and for the most part, they are followed. (laughs) Oh my God. Why do we believe there's misinformation coming out of the industry? I can't even imagine. But with the no antibiotics program, she says, the freedom from disease and distress is not followed. So her point is, is that all of these chickens have it perfect. 
They don't, they're never hungry. They're never thirsty. They're never uncomfortable. Wow. I wish I could say that. They're lucky. They never have pain, injury, or disease. They can express their normal behaviors and they, they never have fear or distress. And the only exception is that when you don't, not using antibiotics, they might have disease and distress. Yeah, that's exactly what the problem is here, babe. Oh, and that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you enjoy the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We understand that not everyone is in a position to contribute financially. And of course, I love you all no matter what, but we have had a rather challenging year. So if you are able, we could really use your help. And this is the perfect time to make a donation because between now and December 31st, all contributions will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000 if we make it to the $25,000. And so listen to me, we have so many exciting announcements. We have revamped our membership options. We would be totally honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. So visit ourhenhouse.org slash support to check out our new tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can be a part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Hen House Heroes, or of course our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include weekly bonus content, access to our engaging flock exclusive spaces in our online community, and get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me live in the audience for a virtual recording of an Our Hen House podcast interview where you can meet the guest and ask questions for the bonus segment. And listen also, since we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you appreciate our Hen House and if you believe in our mission to mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, and if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of independent media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be matched. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated and tax deductible to the full extent of the law. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org support. That's ourhenhouse.org support. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us and leave reviews where you are able to on social media. Just find us at Our Hen House. And if you're one of the listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Walenska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so, so much for your support, your compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye.